Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 72 for the fourth quarter of April 2013. The topic I'm going to talk about today is solar system mysteries that were supposedly solved by pseudoscience and what is likely really going on. Part 1. Iapetus. The concept of this series was originated to talk about the Pioneer Anomaly, but in this episode I'm not actually talking about the Pioneer Anomaly, but I do plan to in future installments. What I'm aiming for is to talk about a genuine weird thing in the solar system that we didn't have a good explanation for, so people used an argument from ignorance to propose their own pet ideas. Kind of actually like the solar neutrino thing with creationists from a few episodes ago. Now this may seem like the entire purpose of this podcast program as a whole, but I'm trying with this to be more specific. For example, in this part one episode, I'm going to talk about Saturn's weird moon, Iapetus. Iapetus has two main very odd features about it, and we didn't know for a long time what caused them, or at least one of them, because we only found out about the other one in 2004, and there are still competing models for that one that was found out in 2004. In that gap of our knowledge entered both the exploding planet hypothesis people and the venerable Richard C. Hoagland, offering to fill these holes with their own very oddly shaped tools. Now, for a recap, just over a year ago, I did a two-part episode on whether the asteroid belt could have been the result of a planet that exploded a very, very long time ago. I'm not going to rehash all of that information now, but the basic idea is that a large planet, Planet V, or Planet 5, orbited where the asteroid belt currently is, and it had several moons, including what we now have as the planet Mars, and it exploded. This created the asteroid belt, several other anomalies across the solar system, and they claim that all of these anomalies, including many of Mars anomalies, which will be discussed in a future episode, are best explained by a planet that exploded. Now, not to jump the gun too much, but the problem with saying that these things are best explained by a planet that exploded is that planets don't explode, and the evidence pointed to for this happening is sketchy at best. And of course that the many lines of evidence that people point to for planets exploding are wrong. You know, go back to listen to episode 29 and 30 for more about that. On to Iapetus. One of the mysteries that I touched on in episode 30 is Saturn's moon Iapetus. If you do an internet search for Iapetus exploded planet, the first link is for a remote viewing website where they claim to have had their remote viewers test whether the exploded planet model or an actual science model really happened. Amazingly and astoundingly, the remote viewers came down squarely on the side of the exploding planet model. I was shocked. But what are they actually trying to explain? Iapetus is a weird moon. As far back as the 1800s, we knew that it had one side that was really bright and one side that was really dark. In fact, Cassini, when he was first viewing Iapetus, noticed that it only appeared on one side of Saturn, and when it should have been on the other side, he couldn't see it. He concluded that one side was bright, one side was dark. 
When we had space probes, in this case Voyager and Pioneer, first returning photos of Iapetus, it emphasized this dichotomy even more, where one part is darker than fresh asphalt, reflecting only 3-5% to of the light that reaches it, while the other part is almost as bright as fresh snow, reflecting about 50-60% to of the light that hits it. The dichotomy is such that the leading hemisphere is the one that's darker, while the trailing hemisphere is brighter. Iapetus actually has a leading and trailing hemisphere because just like our moon is tidally locked around Earth, Iapetus is tidally locked around Saturn, always showing the same side to it, meaning that it has one side that always leads in its orbit around the planet. The mystery is what formed this brightness dichotomy. I've read a few different versions of the solution via the exploded planet hypothesis. The general one that makes the most, and I put quotes around most, sense is that Iapetus was hit by a particularly strong blast wave of material from the exploded planet, blasting one part of one side and forming the dichotomy. Otherwise, you would just have the generic, well, material from the exploded planet hit Iapetus and it got dark on one side. Richard Hoagland added to this by claiming that most other moons in the solar system are active in some way, and so have been resurfaced since that blast, which is why they don't show a dichotomy like Iapetus does. The problem is that this doesn't really work. There was a paper out late last year, a very long paper, about the origin of the grooves on Mars' moon Phobos. Don't worry, there, there is a connection here to Iapetus. The best explanation for the grooves before this paper was that a large crater formed on Mars and threw material up into orbit, and that material formed the grooves on Phobos when the moon plowed through it. The paper's first author was an engineer, and he actually did the math, showing that the debris launched from the crater forming on Mars would have had to travel with better precision than our best guided missiles in order to make the grooves on Phobos the way they are. His conclusion was that this is not possible. The connection here is that Iapetus is about seven times the Earth-Sun distance from the asteroid belt, where this planet 5 would have been. How could you possibly target Iapetus with a debris cloud from a planet that's exploding and hit Iapetus and only part of Iapetus and nothing else from over a billion kilometers away? It's not possible. So you go to something else. Maybe this debris cloud hit everything. Problem there is that Iapetus is the only moon that shows this brightness difference. And so we have Hoagland's modification that Iapetus and other moons were hit, but Iapetus just hasn't been resurfaced like other moons. Problem with this is that there are literally dozens of other moons around Saturn with older or similarly aged surfaces to Iapetus, and none of them show the same brightness difference that Iapetus does. In other words, Hoagland is wrong with his major assumption that other moons have been resurfaced and so removed evidence of this event. He's just wrong. This brings us to what's really going on. This mystery was pretty much solved with the Cassini mission at Saturn within the past decade. The model is a little bit complicated, so bear with me, and you might want to rewind to the 8 minute 10 second mark to re-listen to it again. First, 
Iapetus has the slowest day rotation of any moon in the Saturnian system. This means that parts in Sun will heat up more than parts of other moons exposed to the sunlight because they're exposed longer. It's like if you wear a dark black shirt and you walk outside for a minute and come back inside, you're not going to get that hot. But if you walk outside and stay outside for an hour, you're going to get a lot hotter. It's the same basic idea. This also means that parts of the night side will get colder than the night side of other moons because they'll be facing away from the sun longer. The moon was probably originally covered by an icy material, much like most of the other moons, although it wasn't as bright as we currently see it today. Dark, dusty material blasted off of moons in the system orbited around Saturn, and some were eventually deposited preferentially on the apex side of the moon, the one that faces forward in the moon's orbit around Saturn. Now, that might seem like a, a giant leap to make, but we know this happens. We see debris being blasted or being blown off of these moons, and we know it gets deposited on other moons. The dark material in this case is red in color, and it just so happens that the next moon in from Iapetus is Hyperion, which is unusually red. Once the material is deposited, it's darker, and so it's going to heat up more than the bright ice. When it heats up, ice underneath will sublimate, meaning that it goes directly from a solid to a gas. This is kind of like dry ice on Earth, frozen carbon dioxide. It's frozen, and then if you take it out of the freezer, it's not going to turn into a liquid, it's going to go directly to a gas. It's sublimating. Or if you happen to live in Boulder, Colorado, like I do, when it snows, it sublimates the next day because it gets hot, and so the snow just sometimes turns directly from a solid to a gas. A lot of it does melt, but some of it you can literally see effectively steam coming off of the snow on the hot day that follows the snowfall. Getting back to this model, Iapetus gravity is pretty low, so when this ice sublimates, it's not going to be bound to Iapetus for very long. But it will be bound long enough such that some of the gas will venture over the colder parts that are still in the nighttime, that are still in the shade of the moon itself. When the water gas moves over the part of Iapetus that's experiencing night, it can then freeze out and be redeposited. Now, instead of sort of a, a dirty ice snowball type thing that has seen way too much debris, you're depositing fresh ice on top of you know, darker ice that's been dirtied by other material falling on it. And so the bright parts are going to get brighter. Now you're also going to get ice sublimation from the parts of the moon that aren't covered by the darker material. But that's a much, much, much slower process. Simple thermal models estimate that you know, over one billion years at current temperatures, the dark areas would lose about 20 meters worth of ice, somewhere around 70 feet or so. But the bright areas would lose just 0.5% of that, about 10 centimeters, or about 4 inches of material. As more ice sublimates away from where the dark parts are, they're going to get even darker, because there's not going to be as much ice or at least not as much fresh ice underneath it. And as ice is freshly deposited, as I just said, the bright parts are going to get brighter. This creates a positive feedback loop so that the process self-perpetuates. Dark gets darker, heats up more, more ice sublimates, ice gets sublimated and then deposited in the bright parts, which gets brighter, so they're going to stay colder longer. And so 
as Iapetus especially continues to accrete bits of darker material preferentially on that leading side, this just keeps on going and going and going and going and going and going and going. This model is supported by observations of the areas near the boundary between bright and dark. Crater walls that face Iapetus poles, which would get the least amount of sunlight of that leading side, have bits of bright material while all of the rest of the crater is dark. Also, the dark material is pretty thin, probably only maybe about a foot or about 30 centimeters thick, which is supported by both radar imaging and the fact that very small craters punch through it into brighter ice underneath. This supports the idea that the dark material was deposited on top of the brighter material, which is important for something I'll get to in maybe about 5 to 10 minutes. Now, as I said, this may seem like a complicated situation, especially versus the simple, a planet exploded and painted one side black. But it's much more plausible. It works with different physical and dynamical models, and it's supported by the observations. Meanwhile, the exploded planet idea isn't. And predictions made by it, such as an entire hemisphere of Iapetus would be black, are not supported. It's actually a broad ellipse on one side that's dark, as opposed to an entire hemisphere. Next, we get to Iapetus' equatorial ridge. This is something wholly hoaglandish. Besides Iapetus' weird brightness differences, we have another weird anomaly on this little moon. Well, it's about 900 miles across, but it, it's still quote-unquote little. It has a belt, and it was only discovered in 2004 by Cassini. Circling its equator is a ridge, and the ridge is in the dark area of the moon pretty much only. It's only in some isolated peaks and up to about half the size of the ridge in the bright areas of the moon. The mountain ridge is over 20 kilometers, that's about 12 miles tall, and this makes it the tallest ridge relative to the object size in the solar system. It's nearly the tallest ridge in the solar, or tallest object period in the solar system as it is, but Olympus Mons on Mars is just a little bit taller. Iapetus used to be called the yin-yang moon due to its brightness differences in the way that the Voyager spacecraft took photos of it. These days, the name has changed to the walnut moon because of the ridge right at the equator making it look like a walnut. As the biggest or smallest or weirdest something, you know that this is going to be bound to attract some weird ideas, and this one is really, really weird. Richard Hoagland published a six-part, very lengthy, very rambling, very verbose series on his website back in 2005 about this moon, mostly about the equatorial ridge, which he calls the wall. And I did read it, or at least I skimmed most of it. In typical Hoaglandian manner, he also blew up highly compressed images and pointed out all of the squareness and lines, and then he did some numerology, and then he said that this was evidence of artificiality. And I, I really hate it when he's blowing up these poorly compressed images and saying that there's all this rectilinear stuff, because he emphasized in an interview that he used the highest quality, raw, non-compressed images to do this stuff. And he didn't. I mean, he was he was just lying. There's no way around it. He did not use the images he said he did. But anyway, there are numerous things that I could talk about, including what I just ranted about, but I promised that I would be focusing on the ridge. 
Richard calls it, as I said, the Wall, and he thinks that it was built by an alien race. He argues that the actual entire moon was built by an alien race because you have at least two weird things going on with it, and that this alien race brought the moon or this spaceship or this ark from a different solar system and parked it in orbit around Saturn while they sojourned on to Mars. He continues in his ideas saying that the wall is part of the propulsion system for the massive alien spaceship. In fact, he ends part six by, quote, asking the question of whether this wall is, quote, an Einstein UFT, that's Unified Field Theory, field propulsion system. As another sidebar, this is another one of my pet peeves of when the pseudoscientists say, well, I'm just asking a question. You know, I'm just putting it out there. You know, at some level, okay, you can do that. But when you preface every single idea of yours that is ridiculous with that phrase, it loses its meaning. And you're not just putting it out there, just asking the question. You are stating this stuff and people believe you. Again, that's a separate issue. Moving on, he says that this wall is only visible on the dark part because it's covered up by debris elsewhere and it has been only excavated from that debris on the dark part of the moon. That, of course, would mean that Iapetus has over 20 kilometers burial of material that has only been excavated from the leading side of the moon, and that ice covers it on the trailing side. And I pointed out that this was important about 5-10 minutes ago. As I already discussed, this is wrong, because the dark material is on top of the ice, not the other way around, as Hoagland would need it to be. I don't really think I need to go into why this is crazy. I kind of hinted at it with the fact that he's wrong about what's on top of what. He uses bad data, he uses numerology, and various other things. Add that to the fact that the brighter part of Iapetus is not 20 kilometers taller than the dark part, and you're pretty much done here. But what really is going on? As I mentioned, the whole subject of this podcast is Solar System Mysteries, Part 1, Iapetus. And this particular one was only discovered about 10 years ago, and it's, as I said, very, very weird. There are a couple of actual science ideas as to why this exists, although some are more likely than others, and we don't have consensus yet about what's the more likely model, or the most likely model. Leading the ideas with the least likely explanation is that Iapetus had a ring system early in its history, and that this ring collapsed onto its surface, forming the ridge. The reason why this isn't likely is that the ridge seems to be too solid to just be made of particulate material from a ring. It's kind of like, okay, you're going to have you know some boulders and some flour and some rocks and pebbles, and you're dumping this into a 20-kilometer size mountain around the equator of a planet. You're not going to stand up to too much damage, and yet this ridge is covered with craters, it has tectonic faults running through it, and so it would be really hard for this to be from a collapsed ring. Another idea is that very early in its history, Iapetus had enough heat to be convective, meaning that interior to the moon, blobs of material were moving around, convecting, much like you have circulation cells in Earth's atmosphere and within the interior of Earth itself. Uh, 
The argument goes that lighter material convected up and concentrated near the equator due to Coriolis forces, and this formed the bulge. I'm not really sure how likely this one is because I don't entirely understand it. Another endogenic idea, meaning that it came from Iapetus itself as opposed to exogenic, which would be extraterrestrial or extraplanetary or extralunar, like the ring idea, is that the icy material welled up from beneath its surface and then solidified when exposed to space. It may or not have been formed at the equator, but over time, once it had formed, Iapetus would slowly rotate until it is at the equator because that's the minimum energy configuration. Incidentally, this is also probably why the giant basins on Vesta are at the pole and why the giant volcanic region at Mars is at the equator. Probably it didn't form there, but the planet rotated that way over hundreds of millions of years because of tiny gravitational tugs from other bodies in the solar system torquing it so that mass loads are at the equator and mass deficits are at the poles. A fourth model is that the young Iapetus rotated much more quickly than it does today. Instead of once every 79 days like it does now, it rotated more like once every 17 hours. The rapid rotation would have caused material to bulge out of the equator while Iapetus was still warm enough to have been deformed, and as it cooled, the ridge effectively froze into place. The spin slowed down as tidal forces acted on the moon to eventually lock it into its current, slow, 79-day rotation, just as our moon is locked into its slow rotation as it orbits Earth. Probably had a much faster rotation early on. The problem with all of these is that they invoke physics that not everybody knows about, and with limited data, it's hard to rule one as better than the others. On the other hand, Everyone knows about spaceships and Star Trek, and it's much easier to look at crappy photos and not realize that you're seeing artifacts in the images. I think that's why Richard is able to have at least some people believe him, while it's harder to get people to understand the actual science of what's more likely to be going on, which is why I do this podcast. With that in mind, this first edition of Solar System Mysteries that were pseudo-solved is wrapped up, and I'd appreciate feedback on whether or not you like this concept for episodes every now and then. Due to the length of a previous episode and a busy schedule, there's no new news this episode and there is no Q&A for this episode. For feedback, I haven't gone into the iTunes feedback for quite a while, so I thought I'd look and see what nuggets people were leaving. From the Canadian side of the intertubes, Chip Cherry wrote, Not only do you get solid, sciencey goodness, but you also get direct responses to the crap that your aunt is going to bring up at the holiday dinner table. Nibiru! The Earth is hollow! The moon is a pornographer! Don't worry, Dr. Stu has got your back. I chose to mention this review because, well, it was a five-star review, and it gets into that question of what you should do when confronted by someone who's spouting nonsense. I know other podcasters have addressed this before, but I thought I would weigh in. In many cases, I let it go and I bite my tongue. In fact, I was just faced three weeks ago by a friend of a housemate of a friend who was advocating homeopathy, chiropractic, uh 
acupuncture and some other stuff while eating waffles during breakfast. I bit my tongue. It was not worth it. And, of course, then I got to flavor my waffle with a little bit of iron in it. On the other hand, there are some topics that I do feel the need to speak up on. Anyone advocating Hoagland stuff, or anyone talking about the moon hoax, or Planet X, those are my hot-button issues these days. Perhaps I'm generally lucky and don't have relatives that are too insane, and they're not going to bring this stuff up at the dinner table. Actually, though, I do have an aunt who's a psychiatrist, go figure, who pulled me aside at a cousin's bat mitzvah back when I was 15 and wanted to be an engineer and told me I needed to be very, very careful because the CIA likes to kidnap and brainwash young, smart Jewish boys, and they cause cerebral palsy, and that the Masons are just a front for all of their mind operation game stuff. I sort of smiled, nodded, and then went to my dad's younger brother and asked if she had ever told him that. He rolled his eyes and couldn't believe that she was still going on about it. I went to my mom. Same story. I called my dad later that night. He was lucky enough to get out of the bat mitzvah. And he said, yeah, he couldn't believe his aunt was still going on about this. I guess every family does have one of those people in it. And you really do have to pick and choose your battles. I mean, for example, in this case... It really wasn't doing any harm, and everyone knew she was kind of crazy, and so there was just no point in really addressing it. That means that it's time for the puzzler, where each episode I attempt to ask a critical thinking question based loosely on the material discussed in the main segment. The scenario last time was this. Why do objects become tidally locked? Congratulations to Sea Otter on the SGU message boards for being the first to send in a correct answer. And I did actually kind of get into this earlier in this episode, but to rehash, the solution is that planetary objects are not perfect spheres with no density deviations whatsoever. They're not regular like that. You will always have a little bit more mass somewhere on the body. If that object is close enough to another, more massive object, like the sun, then the more massive object will tug a bit more on that extra mass every single time that that extra mass rotates closer to the more massive object. Like, say you have a perfect sphere, except for one big mountain, and every time that that mountain is aimed towards the sun, it's going to pull just a little teensy tiny bit more. It's going to pull less when it's farther away because it's farther away. Over a very, very long time, that all adds up to slow the rotation until that extra bit of mass is facing the more massive object. Since gravity is an inverse square law, this means that if your two objects are close together, the tidal locking is going to happen much more quickly. That's why Mercury is locked in a 3 to 2 resonance with the Sun, but Mars isn't. This episode, there is no puzzler. Hopefully, the next episode will be a recording of my Skepticamp presentation this Saturday, which is a testbed for the TAM workshop that I'm co-leading, so you'll get to hear some parts of that. If, somehow, that doesn't work out, then it should be on the true color of Mars, and if it does work out, then the true color of Mars will be the next episode. So send in a puzzler if you have any ideas for a puzzler on the true color of Mars. The only announcement for this episode is that I have absolutely positively no idea how I managed to put out four episodes per month back last year for 
gee, about eight months in a row. Unfortunately, due to having four ongoing different projects right now, I can't keep that pace up. I don't want to drop back down to two a month because I have a lot of topic ideas, but I'm going to at least drop down to three a month for May. They should come out on the 1st, 11th, and 21st of each month, and we'll see what happens. I know other podcasts sometimes take breaks or get months behind and then backdate their episodes and are still months behind and then take a break to catch up. I'd prefer not to do that. There is a small possibility that that may happen this coming December and January, though, when I take a trip to Australia for about five weeks. More on that in possible meetups or two as the date for that gets closer. That wraps up this topic for the 72nd edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a lot at the same time. For more information about this podcast, you can visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, you can use many, many different ways to get in contact with me, including the feedback form on the website, email to podcast at sjrdesign.net, Comment on the page for this episode on the website, blog post for the episode, Facebook page for the podcast, or you can even send me a tweet, at PseudoAstro. I do read every message, and I do appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, you can feel free to make them. I do take them under advisement, and I've planned a few that have been suggested. Also, I would request that you write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, spread the word. Tell lots of other people as well.